Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to Hope and Patience. It's me, Amelia Rope, ex-chocolate creator, now podcast creator and your host. If you're new to Hope and Patience, it's great to have you here. A huge hello and thank you. We're going to be exploring, delving into the stories of founders and dipping into pearls of wisdom from wellbeing experts. The guests will be inspirational and the precious insights shared guaranteed to be absolute gems. It's such a huge treat to have my guest here today. He is the author of The Distraction Addiction, Rest, Why You Get More Work Done When You Work Less, and his new book out, Shorter, Work Better, Smarter and Less, Here's How. So it's a no-brainer, really, to grab Alex Pang, the author, to come on the show before he jets back to the US, because don't we all need to work shorter hours, shorter days, shorter weeks? So huge welcome to Hope and Patience, Alex Pang. Well, thanks very much for having me. I was delighted to read, Alex, when I was doing a bit of research, that you were inspired by Cambridge when you were riding a bike for your second book, your middle book, Rest. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, I was over there a few years ago on a sabbatical at at Microsoft Research, and I work as a consultant in Silicon Valley where you're constantly overloaded, you're kind of half a project behind all the time. You You live and breathe overwork and long hours. And you kind of accept that as what you need to do in order to do good work. But when I was in Cambridge, I had this moment about, you know, in early February or so where... I suddenly realized that I was reading all kinds of great stuff, I was writing a lot, I was getting a lot done, but I didn't feel any of that kind of time pressure that I normally did. And it made me think, you know, maybe our normal assumptions about the relationship between how long we work and how much we get done and how stressed we have to be are actually backwards. Maybe in order to do the kind of work that we really want to do, it's necessary to build rest into our schedules and to figure out ways to have essentially more time for what seem like unproductive activities, but maybe actually aren't unproductive at all. And so that's what got started me on the research that eventually led to rest, which eventually led me to my new book, Shorter. Yeah, I was going to say, what is what was the catalyst to get you to write Shorter? So, you know, rest is all about the ro- hidden role of what I call deliberate rest in the lives of very creative and prolific people. The way that rest turns out to serve as a kind of play, kind of playground for new ideas, as well as an important source of creative and just physical renewal. When I was promoting the book, though, I would get questions about, you know, okay, this is great if you, you know, if you are, you know, rich and successful and you can organize your days how you want. But what about, say, you know, a working mom? How does she get more rest in in her life? What tips and tricks do you have for that? And the question partly actually kind of bothered me because, you know, for one thing, I didn't like the phrase tips and tricks. And so I started looking for companies that were sort of redesigning their work in ways that gave everybody more time and found 
you know, and that's when I started finding these companies that had moved to four-day weeks, to six-hour days, or even five-hour days without cutting salaries, without sacrificing productivity or, you know, or alienating clients. And they seemed to me like they were both incorporating and applying the lessons of rest for everyone, but they were also solving a whole bunch of other problems that have felt kind of endemic to modern work. And they were doing so in a way that seemed elegant and impressive and sort of, uh, and sort of worth sharing with the world. And have you found that there are specific industries that really excel with a shorter week and also um, a certain size company that it works mm-hmm. more effectively with? So my book looks at more than 100 companies in all kinds of industries around the world, ranging from you know, as small as two people to as large as 2,000. There definitely are early adopters. You know, they're concentrated in software, in advertising and design, interestingly in um, health and beauty products, and uh, and in uh, or financial services and accounting, and finally restaurants, because these are company these are industries that are having real problems with recruitment and retention. There are enduring gender imbalances. Um, they have trouble with work-life balance, and they often are dominated by lots of small companies for you know, for whom hiring and retention are existential issues. And so, these are the companies that feel these pressures most strongly. But there's not an industry around that doesn't have some version of these challenges. And so, you know. We've also seen more recently nursing homes, factories, um, or to fast food restaurants experimenting with four-day weeks. So I think that you know while it started in sort of industries where it was easier to kind of reschedule time, it's proving to be something that is accessible to a wider range of companies and sectors than even I thought possible when I began this work. And with shorter weeks, what were the initial reactions from um, employers and employees Mm -hmm. about trialing shorter weeks? Mm -hmm. These experiments always start at the top, right? You've got a CEO or founder who very often themselves go through a health scare or some near miss with burnout that convinces them that... You know, they've got to make a change, or else they're not going to be able to keep working, sort of the way and sort of their and you know and stay at their companies. The initial reaction among employees is interesting because it's not always popping champagne corks and you know or of and and happiness. People often are pretty skeptical at first, and when you ask them why, it's because, well, you know, they say. My first thought was, I can't get all this work done in five days. How am I going to do it in four? Yeah, totally. (laughs) And it matters for them that they be able to do a good job. And so, you know, the idea of this being an opportunity to, you know, to kind of slack off is not something that's actually particularly attractive to them. You know, most of us like being able to do a good job. You know, we want to be able to do work 
that's meaningful and to do it to a standard that pleases us. And so, you know, I think it needs to be made clear to people that the four-day week isn't a challenge to that, but rather a way to make it more possible while also making their work more sustainable. And so once you go through with them and give them a chance to think through how this can happen, you know, they go from being skeptics to being real champions and enthusiasts of it. Where do you see the movement moving to? Do you see the it ha, you know globally us all managing to achieve shorter weeks somehow, even if it's hospitals or in education? The bigger picture, do you do you see us nailing it? Yeah, you know, um, even since I finished the book a few months ago, I found another fifty or so companies that have started these trials. So this is a global movement that has been kind of taking root in lots of different countries, including Japan and Korea, you know, places that have invented their own words for working yourself to death, right? So, and the fact that it's happening all over the world, that it started in industries where overwork is, you know, just a fact of life, and that it's spreading across a variety of different industries and now into the public sector, into higher education, suggest to me that you know, this that the next few years are going to be a time when we see this adopted by you know, some large multinational companies. They've at least put together a roadmap for how they could become like the four-day week region and use that as a way of attracting, you know, kids who left to go to university and work in the big city, you know. Back to you know, back to these small towns where they could enjoy a better quality of life and you know, and reconnect with family. Um, I've seen it in you know, in secondary schools that have moved from five day weeks to four day weeks without having an impact on test scores, which in America at least are you know the one and only way that you measure success now. Um, but you've also seen it in places like factories and even nursing homes. I love the U.S. I lived there um, in my younger days. I always feel that the U.S. is really receptive. Have you found um, our little island? Mm -hmm. Do you, you know, is the U.K. open to this or are they quite traditional in their thinking? The U.K. is one of the kind of hotbeds of innovation in this. And I think that there were... Uh, you know, I, there are a whole bunch of companies here in London that have adopted it. One of the pleasures of working on this book was getting to spend time here. And then there are also um, a number of them in Edinburgh, in Glasgow, Norwich, and you know, uh, Brighton is also, an, is also another kind of little hotbed. And so I've, you know, I've been, I've been interested to see that, you know, in a place where there has been a conversation about productivity and overwork, that there have been a lot of these experiments just kind of from the ground up in using four-day weeks as a way of solving those problems. 
what are your thoughts? I mean, I think now I, I was in a chocolate business and I was, I can't remember what you call it. I've written it down somewhere. Worship overworking. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. I was, I was one of those. Um, but with my, my new world, I, I have that less. But I see myself more as a flexible worker. Mm-hmm. What is the difference? I think we understand the difference between flexible and shorter, but how do they work? Does one work more positively than the other? What, what are your thoughts on flexible working in shorter weeks? You know, I think that each one can be quite valuable. And some companies are able to make flexible work really a success. There are problems that that sociologists who study this stuff have found, which are that, you know, which I think will be familiar to some of your readers or listeners. Um, you know, even places that are very supportive of flexible work and have great policies are often struggle with keeping people who use them on the same career tracks that they have been, right? Um, I think that, you know, when you, when you start to work flexibly, your boss can start to, you know, it's it's easier to choose someone who's always in the office for the next big project, right? Um, also, people who work flexibly or spend more time working from home feel like they have to do twice as much in order to kind of deal with the friction problems of not being in the office and staying coordinated and visible to their colleagues and their bosses. So, you know, they end up having to work twice as hard in order to do what turns out to be 100% of their work, even if they're on only 80% time. One of the virtues of the four-day week or other kinds of shorter hours is that that flexibility stigma disappears. There's no question about, you know, why is she leaving at 3 o'clock to pick up kids if everybody else gets to leave at 3 o'clock, right? It takes a thing that often is an exception that in many cases you have to fight for that put, that can put you at a disadvantage with your colleagues and turns it into something that everybody gets to enjoy and that completely changes the calculus around or of a bunch of issues regarding balancing work and parenting and working hours in a way that is you know, that is great for working parents do you think um, if we nail the four-day working week, then there's going to be a drive that people want to work three days? Or do you think that we will have our sort of first, would you say, satiated? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I think that the – okay. Um, one answer is that I think we will still need – to keep working and there's still you know and there are social and psychological benefits to work that according to researchers at Cambridge you get from working about 8 to 10 hours a week so really if everyone could do that that would be great now i have had a couple you know a, a couple founders say that right now the 4 day week is you know, it's a it's a terrific attractor of talent. It helps me retain people. If everybody else in my industry does it, I'm going to look at at going to three days, right? And I think that the idea that you know, once you've made, once you've done one jump from five days to four, and once you've reoriented your company culture away from the idea that long hours are a virtue, 
that you know the ability to sit at a desk for 12 hours is something you want to promote rather than see as a problem. Once you get into the mode of looking for ways to do your work more efficiently, more effectively, to collaborate you know, sort of more powerfully, it's not a very big jump to ask, okay, we've made it to four days, can we push further? And so I, I think it will, it needs to become a little more popular before companies start thinking seriously about that next, that next step. But I think it is a logical incremental step from the four-day week as opposed to the kind of revolutionary jump that, you've kind of, that you kind of need to make when you first break away from the five-day week that we've all grown up with to go to four. You'd mentioned, Alex, about efficient working, and obviously you need to be efficient to be able to get your shorter weeks. Tell us a bit more about that side of it with the meetings and, you know, protocols, and you also mentioned tech-reducing distraction in your book too. Mm -hmm. What these companies do, at least the ones where, you know, people are working in offices, are kind of three big things that allow them to do five days' worth of work in four. The first one is um, you cut out almost all standing meetings, and the meetings that you have, you run much more effectively, efficiently, and you make them a lot shorter. Rather than the hour-long weekly meeting that you've done for years and no one quite knows why any longer, just get rid of that. To people, you know, sorry, I'm interrupting here, no. but but it's a question when I was reading Alex's book that made me think is, do people think it's rude? Because for me, when I book a meeting, people assume, okay, you immediately assume it's an hour yeah. over here. Right. So how do you suddenly push back saying, actually, the meeting's only going to be 20 minutes? Right. There are not a lot of people who push back against the idea that a 20-minute meeting is going to be, you know, is bad. Um, you do need to develop some new kind of custom around that, mm-hmm. like having meetings start really on time and end really on time rather, you know, one of the things with an hour-long meeting often is that it kind of gives people permission to drift in five, you know, five minutes after starting time. And the fact that it's longer means that people are more likely to drift away mentally, you know, to do the thing where they're checking their email under the table as if everyone else can't see what they're doing. Um and by, you know, by running meetings that are 15 or 20 minutes long, you send the message that you know, we're, we're really here to make this set of decisions, to communicate these things, and then we are done. And it also communicates that we're going to respect everyone's time. And in an environment where we're all trying to do five days work and four, we're all in this together. There's a lot of stuff that can only happen if we cooperate, if we follow the same sets of rules. You know, we often think of attention and focus as like totally personal things that happen between our eyes and the screen. But, you know, your ability to focus depends on my ability to respect your attention, your need to get stuff done, my discipline to not ask you that one quick question that turns into 10 minutes. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, getting getting discipline around meetings is the first sort of is the first thing. The next thing is around technology. Partly it's about technology distractions. Um, studies show that we interact with our phones something like 150 times every day. So scary. Which is extraordinary, yeah. right? So, you know, you can you can 
sort of reduce that a lot just by doing things like allowing people to check their email in the morning and then in the afternoon and that's it. And do you need to have something on your email say, I only check my emails or do people get used to your boundaries? I think lots of people lots of people do put in, you know, put in a thing in their signature line, let's say, as a way of, you know, sort of making clear that you know, I might not get back to you in half an hour, but you know, I do read this every day. So I think until it becomes a more common thing, that's that's actually that's that's not a bad bit of practice. Or and in some companies, like, you know, I think for design firms or advertising agencies, having a distinctive culture, being kind of unique is a selling point. So you can turn this into something that differentiates you from the competition. The new USP. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, so getting a handle on the tech distractions is one important thing. And then thinking more about how you can use the technology to either outsource tasks or automate things um, or to augment your own abilities so that you can work more effectively on your most interesting work is an important step to take in figuring out how to eliminate like just the busy work so that you can focus on the stuff that really matters. And then the final thing that companies do is redesign the workday itself. They often will set out particular times of day when people can be a little antisocial. They don't have to answer the phone. You don't have to talk to people. You focus entirely on your most important tasks. And in some offices, they have like lights over desks or pictures of dogs or other things that, you know, that signal that you're in focused mode. And so, but, you know, having a time when everybody does it is good because it kind of synchronizes the day for everyone. Um, if Also, if everyone is focused, then nobody is likely to interrupt anybody else. So it makes it easier to kind of enforce that rule. You know, it's a bit like going to the, you know, going to a movie theater where, you know, people are really serious about being quiet. And setting aside other times of day for meetings with clients and brainstorming meetings and stuff, and also having a little social time. Yeah, I was going to say, because that to a lot of people is really important. So I was I was just going to ask you, does the sort of camaraderie of office life, because I mean, really, some of us, when, when I was in an office, you're spending most of your life, it's a big relationship. Right. Does that go by the wall with the shorter week? It does not, if you allow people to kind of self-organize and one of the things that they do is self-organize sociability within the office. So lots of places they tell stories about, you know, when we were doing five days a week, everyone would just get a sandwich and eat at their desks. Now, you know, we all get together and we have lunch. In some places they cook together, which turns out to be socially a really terrific thing. And there are some organizational behavior studies that show that doing things like cooking together actually make teams work better. My favorite example is a place called Pursuit Marketing in Glasgow, where the first month after they implemented a four-day work week, the managing director saw a couple guys showing up in the office on Friday mornings, spending about half an hour and then disappearing. And she finally asked one of them what was going on. And he confessed that they hadn't told their wives that they were working four-day weeks. (laughs) So they were coming in, 
you know, like making one phone call and then you know, going off and spending the rest of the day together. And it is a wonderful illustration of how, you know, friendships in the office matter. And so companies that, you know, that move to four-day weeks want to make sure to you know, preserve time for those. And in so doing, often you know, allow people to be to become better friends because you know you're actually you're actually spending social time together that is more meaningful than the you know two minutes in the sort of in the break room, um, and so you know which serves also as a kind of balance against that focus time. So it turns out. By designing the day properly, you get a win on both counts. What do people, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but what do people do in their time off? Oh. Um, in their extra right. day? No, most, um, uh, lots of life admin. Um, and then the next things that people do are exercise. That's a very big thing. As one managing director put it, they care. Right? They spend time taking care of themselves, taking care of family, doing community or volunteer work. So a lot of caring type stuff. And then they also cook more for themselves, which is you know, important because we often cook healthier food than, you know, than we buy from the takeout place. People also will uh, sometimes pursue other hobbies. They may have side businesses that are completely different from their normal work. I know a few software developers who've become personal trainers. Oh, they've got their little side hustle. Exactly. You know, or to stick with software developers, there are a couple companies that actually stay open on the Fridays so that people can come in and they can just kind of play around with their own stuff. Because lots of software people know that the there are new languages to learn. There's always new technology that you want to play around with. And so giving them the opportunity to do that is a real win, both in terms of just personal professional development and often you know, allows them to develop skills that turn out to be a useful sometime in some project down the road. But I don't hear stories of people feeling like the time is completely wasted. Right? No, I, th I mean, I think that they, they must feel so happy, which makes me or in my head raises the question, certainly over here, our health service is completely... Mm -hmm. Crippled, and um, I wonder if if people did strive for this shorter week, whether we would be potentially healthier, whether it's mental health or physical health, mm -hmm. and and possibly alleviate the health service. Mm -hmm. What are I, your thoughts? Um, I've had uh, I actually had one founder make exactly this point, right? And um, absenteeism, sick days at you know at these companies go down to you know sort of single percentages per year. And these are, you know, these are these are some industries like, you know, the call center again, where there's an awful lot of having a cold on Monday after, you know, sort of after overindulgence the night before. <laughs> People definitely report being healthier, um, just physically healthier, because both because they have more time for exercise, but also for kind of other sorts of health maintenance stuff. They are they definitely are happier. They feel like their work-life balance is better. There were you know, sort of surveys that you – know, attitude surveys within offices that show some dramatic and also sustained increases in 
happiness levels inside and outside the office. You know, you might expect that for the first two months. And then kind of after the novelty wears off, you would think maybe it starts to drop. The, The good news is that it stays consistently high. And I've seen I've seen numbers from places that have been doing this for three or four years and the numbers jump and they stick. So I think all the indications are that this as a kind of public health strategy has a lot going for it. We've got to do it. Come on, yeah. us Brits, or actually everybody, because well, we have global listeners too, um, should be should be starting to think about implementing it. Alex, many of but first read the book. Many of my <laughs> listeners, <Good job. laughs> many of our, well, it is a really good book. I was up till I don't know midnight reading it, and then I was up at six this morning, and it is just compelling. It really is a phenomenal read. But many of my of our listeners are founders or um, thinking about setting up their business, and as I'm sure you're aware, the the stress, the burden is massive. I mean, it, it's the the. I love the way that in your book you describe it as living with uncertainty and social isolation. I, I've i been doing that for 13 years. Somehow I'm addicted to it, but it is it is stressful. You In your book, you um, there's some research from Professor Michael Freeman, or they talk, he talks about it at the University of California, and Paul Hokimaya. Could you share some of the research? I think there was some Swedish research in the book um, and also offer any advice for us founders, solopreneurs, freelancers, because we really need it. Mm -hmm. So the research by Friedman and Hochmeyer and stuff was looking at the mental health of entrepreneurs. And not surprisingly, what they found was that founders have higher rates of chronic stress, they're more likely to report depression, Um, they have higher rates of other sorts of mental health challenges, and a good bit of that has to do with the stresses of working for yourself, leading a team, and the kind of sense of social isolation that comes from being the person in charge who is ultimately responsible for a whole bunch of other people being able to pay the rent. And one of the important things that they found that they find is that an important alleviator of those stresses is time with family and with peers. The challenge, of course, is finding that time. And one of the great benefits of moving to a four-day week is for founders being able to develop a more sustainable way of working. That means that you know, they are not going to just you know burn out in mm. two years, but rather they're going to be able to keep this company going for another twenty. Um, I had at one company the the two co-founders said, you know, we have worked in a whole bunch of different places, and we had our share of you know sleeping under our desks the night before a project was due. We want this to be the last company we ever work for. Right. We want this to be a place that is going to last. It will change, but you know, we wanted to design it to be an environment that in which the company was successful not because it used people up and then cast them away, but because it was a place that allowed you to develop your skills, to sort of grow as a person, to have a family, 
even while doing world-class work. And so I think that, uh, that the challenge of creating environments like that is one that you know, requires plenty of work, but no entrepreneur should be scared of work. But the I think that's you know, the one thing we're not we're right. not scared of. You know, but the you know, but the rewards are are huge. You know, are huge. You know, and then how you go about doing it, I think that you know, probably everybody Especially remember Alex as yeah. well that some of some people will have investors on their case. Right. You know, and to go to your investor saying, "Hey, you know, I I'm I'm going to aim for this shorter week. I think it's going to really help us." A lot of them will be thinking, "You know, I've just put a slab of cash in the business. I want a massive chunk back." Right. Then there may be a bit of negotiation needed for that one. Yeah, you know, I think if you know if your investors want eight hundred percent growth, you know, this year, if they're in the kind of growth hacking business, yeah, that's a hard sell. However, there are venture backed companies that have been able to go to their investors and say, "We want to move to a four day week," and they and the investors are cool with that. Um, a company, a Korean company, Wuwa Brothers just a couple months ago, closed a $300 million round that included investors from the U.S. and from Singapore. And they were one of the pioneers in moving to a shorter work week within the software industry. And they've done spectacularly well. Um, they've been, you know, they've, they've had one of those, you know, up, up into the right growth curves that you always love to see in business presentations. <laughs> you think, oh, I'd love, to, I'd love to be part of that. No, but I think that the, you know, that uh, that the things that companies do in terms of shortening meetings, being more thoughtful about technology, about being more thoughtful about how you construct boundaries around your focus time and your family time, you know, these are these are all things that are terrific within organizations. But I think they're all things that probably each one of us can do ourselves to, you know, make our own solo enterprises work better and to allow ourselves to, you know, to claim back more time. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, even a simple thing like setting aside time in the morning for your, you know, for your hardest work creates, it kind of gives you permission to rest in the day because it lets you look back on you know, these several big things that, you know, you've you've knocked out. One of the worst feelings that, you know, that I know of at work is you know, five o'clock rolls around and, you know, you had a bunch of things to do and, you know, you got called into some meetings and you had these calls and this other stuff. And then you look back at the end of the day and you wonder, what did I get done? And I, you know, I found that it always incredibly frustrating and I think designing a day to make to you know to make that very unlikely is a great way not only of becoming more productive um, and becoming happier, but also creating a space in which you can say, "Yeah, it's okay for me to take this time off because it's going to be you know because I've done the these other things, and also because it's good for me." And kind of, I've earned it. I did that yesterday, I have to say, because I'm looking to find a flat at the same time as everything <laughs> else. And I thought, yikes, I've got a hell of a lot to do. But I got up, I did your four hour after hearing you on Saturday, I thought I'm just going to get up early, do a four hour blitz, which mm -hmm. I did. And then I spent another four hours trying to find a home, which I still haven't found. And then I came back and did another blitz, and I felt so much. I felt so much better, and my mind was clear because I'd had that really focused time, mm -hmm. time off, 
and then back back onto it and it was really good so alex um can i ask you are you an example Mm-hmm. Of someone who works the shorter week or the four-hour day. Um, I do the four-hour day, but not the four-day week. Um, I do everything that I talk about in my book. Rest. You know, there were. You know, I will. Um, I get up super early in the morning to write. Um, most you know, like the hardest part of the day for me is done by about ten a.m. because it starts around five, and then. I'm a big fan of naps now. I have two dogs who are also really good at showing me how to do that. Um, and you've got a wife and two kids. And, yes, yeah. that's true. Um, kids are older now, uh, or fortunately, they're almost okay. off to college. And so, but I also do a lot of work with clients in Asia and in Europe. So there's a lot of time, sort of time zone shifting. So, you know, sometimes that means, a, you know, a little time on my Sunday, which is, you know, Sort of Monday in Australia or Seoul, so I've got to move things around a little so bit fle- because of that. Fl- yeah, flexibility. But on right. the whole, that's what you aim for. That's right. your sort of horizontal, and then you just sort of the bit of the seesaw to accommodate Ex- extra exactly time, extra things. You know, and my first book took me ten years to finish, and I did that kind of working in kind of mad genius mode. You know, assuming that. The way that people write is lot, you know, is sort of late nights when you get inspired, and you know your kind of classic romantic idea of how writers work. And in the last ten, but in the last ten years, doing all the stuff that I talk about in rest, right, having very particular periods to work, building in lots of time for breaks, I've written three books. So I think that for me, the results speak for themselves. Certainly. Okay, so um, Alex is is new to the show, but we have a chocolate break (laughs) because my past was in chocolate. I asked his lovely agent, Leo, who's sitting patiently, for some chocolate guidance. I didn't get any. So I took the plunge and I thought I'm going to get something quintessentially British. So I went to Fortnum and Mason's. So, Alex, there is a pick and mix and we are allowed to quickly eat one. (laughs) While I have two, uh, just a couple of quick questions, if I can ask them. Um, Do you have a um, favourite song that you would share with our listeners and maybe a favourite hideaway? Where you disappear off to? Ooh, um, I listen to so much music that ha- that you know. One only allow one. <laughs> one, um, you know. I think that one of the great underrated bands now is the Bee Gees. Oh now, yes, I love them. Who's Strut your stuff? Look, you know, Chris, the producers leaping up you know, with joy. I, I think whose brilliance has been underestimated by their popularity and just you know the uniqueness of. Of of their of their sound, and so I've always thought "Nights on Broadway" was like the quintessential perfect pop song, and so she's with you on that. There one. we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would nominate that as a favorite. Okay, that sounds good. Favorite hideaway. Wow, this is really good chocolate. Yeah, well, there you go. There's um, quite a few in there. There's a, a mix of uh, milk, dark, and one white. I'm going to have that one because it's a coffee shot in there. Okay. Um, Favorite hideaway. Yes, private hideaway. Favorite hideaway. Um, I would say uh, the island of Kauai. Which oh, wow. Is Where's one of that? The, it's, the, it's, the, it's one of the smaller of the Hawaiian islands. It's not as sort of popular as Maui or such, but um, it is absolutely gorgeous. And it's also a place that my wife's family likes to go to. 
So, so it keeps everybody happy. Mm-hmm, exactly. Now, Alex, the podcast is called Hope and Patience after my two grandmothers. One was Hope <laughs> and one was Patience. Wow. I know. They were quite eccentric women, which probably is why I am how I am. But um, <laughs> would you be able to share a moment where you've had to have bucket loads of hope and maybe you've had to remember a bit of patience? Hmm. Bucket loads of hope. You know, um, every time you shop around a book proposal, it is a, you know, that's an exercise in both being really kind of out there and revealing, but also having to be incredibly resilient. You know, these stories about how you know, sort of um, famous authors were turned down by you know, 20 publishers before they finally you know, sort of got their book somewhere, those actually turn out to be totally typical stories. That's just how <laughs> the industry works. Each of my books, we have we had at least 20 publishers say no before we had had someone say yes. And so you need in the you know after about 15 or so, you need to be able to kind of dig deep and to say, you know, we're, we're actually going to find a place for this. Um, it's a bit like, I think, getting married. You know, I haven't is, done that yet. No, I mean, I'm heading is, for 50 very I mean, quickly. You know, in the sense that it is very flattering to get lots of yeses. Yes. <laughs> but really, all you need is the one right one. Yep. You know, and that's more important than all the no's. Um, and then patience. You know, having raised two children, I think sort of um, every day of the last 21 years has pretty much <laughs> required a certain amount of patience. Um, I think the and then a little a little closer to Bookland is, you know, just the time waiting for the book to actually get out. Um, I know. So it. when did you finish r- actually writing this? To when P- Penguin published it, and right. for us now to buy it. So it'll be out March 5th. I delivered the finished manuscript, what, end of June or so? Gosh, it's quite a July. swift turnaround yeah. then. And then we had, you know, some revisions and stuff. And yep. then um, I read the audiobook and in reading the audiobook, wished I'd written a, you know, a much better book because... It's superb. I promise yeah. you, everybody, <laughs> I, I really... Anyway, it's... Yeah. It, oh, thank you. It, it's um, uh, fr- moving from that. It leads very sweetly into my book recommendation for the podcast, which has to be shorter by Alex Pang, published by Penguin. It, I honestly mean it. It is the most fantastic read. You will harvest so much information that I think will really help you with your businesses. And the quote is also from Dear Alex, which is from his book, which is quite simply, let's get started. So a huge thank you, Alex, for coming on the show today. It means a masses to I just feel it's it's just fantastic. And um, what you've shared has been brilliant. So thank you very much. I hope you have a safe flight back. And um, we will all be buying the books. So uh, I'm going to back read now. I'm going to backpedal to rest in the distraction <laughs> book as well, Distraction Addiction. So, yeah, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me on and um, thank you for the chocolates. Yeah, you've Heck, got those to take. Great choices. <laughs> <laughs>
They're so, very good. Very well done. So thank you very much, my lovely listeners, for finding us. I'll be back with another story soon. So make sure you subscribe to get the latest episode. And if you like what you hear, feel free to give us a positive rating, subscribe and spread the word. I'd also love to know what you'd like to hear more of, less of, and importantly to none of. Just let me know via the website. So until next time, keep that sparkle. Bye. Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk or find Amelia on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Hope and Pat.